um, chapter 12. Um, so we're going to be flying through a lot of uh, chapters just to see a little bit of information. Then we're going to settle in Genesis 22, uh, verses 1 through 19. Um, I'm going to pray for us a little quick prayer for the word. Father God, we thank you so much for the time that you have spent with us today, uh, for your presence this very day, for your goodness throughout our week, for your love for us that we do not deserve every day of our lives. Lord, we thank you all together. Lord, come to this place today, fill this place with your spirit and open our hearts uh, that we may receive your word, me and everyone that is listening to my voice. Let your spirit speak through me and open all of our hearts that we may receive what he says. Lord, speak to us your very, very heart that we may truly be transformed, that we may, be, we may find joy and encouragement and hope in this journey as believers. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, today's uh, sermon is titled, The Lord Will Provide himself the lamb right it's from the story of abraham and isaac and i think when that name is when when that when those two names are mentioned together i think the same story comes to our mind um possibly we may be thinking about abraham like traveling through his life seeking for god's promise and isaac being a focal point for that story but the other thing that you guys might remember is Abraham trying to sacrifice Isaac, or Abraham being told to sacrifice Isaac. Um, so that's the story we'll be going through. But before we get to that story, we get we get to land in Genesis uh, 22. We got to look at this, like, who's Abraham? Um, we got to come back to chapter 12, right? That's where you get the call of Abraham. Abraham is like, um, he wasn't Abraham. When we meet him in chapter 12, his name was Abram. Um, and he was the 10th son of uh, Noah, uh, born from the bloodline of Shem, the son of Noah. And you find that story in the previous chapters, the story of the flood, uh, Sunday school story that we all love and keep. We've heard it possibly so many times. We can remember it at the back of our hands. Um, as... At 75, Abraham is actually called. The calling of Abraham happens at the time he's 75 years old. And in Genesis 12, uh, 1 through, through, you actually see in the first two chapters, I mean, two uh, verses, his call. And this is what the call was. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and... Make your name great so that you will be a blessing to the whole nations. So that's the story. That's how it starts. And Abraham believes God, follows God, goes into in a direction that he doesn't know about, leaving all of his family members except this family member he has named Lot. So that's the call of Abraham. And through the story, you will see so many things happen. As soon as Abraham is called into a land where he's called is called a land, of Canaan and if you guys uh, go back um, you will realize Canaan is the cursed 
child of Ham, whom Noah cursed, right? Cursed be Canaan, right? So the descendants of Canaan have, have a country. And now 10 generations later, Abraham is being called to go and hurt that land that Canaan uh, owns. Um, so therefore, as soon as he gets into that place, apparently you would realize that place is still cursed. So he experiences drought and he ends up traveling to Egypt. And then he couldn't say, Sarah is my wife because she was beautiful and he knew that would get him killed. So you see all this kind of trouble. So as soon as Abraham is called, his calling becomes very painful. There is suffering that comes with the calling that he has. So we see that. That's the first thing we understand. So that's the one thing that we can also learn from Abraham's story that God calling you, that doesn't mean everything is going to be smooth and simple. But anyways, we keep going to try to see what happens in Abraham's life. And then Abraham grows rich, Lot grows rich, and then becomes trouble once God rescues them from the, the troubles they went through in Egypt. And they return to the land and they finally decide we have to separate from one another. So Abraham and Lot separate from one another. Lot chooses this place called Sodom because it's beautiful when he looked at it. And there's so many resources for his uh, livestock. But then um, Lot is actually captured with his family. And then Abraham goes and rescues Lot uh, with like men that are that have grown in his household, 318, uh, the scripture tells us. And then when he returns from the war in victory, Lot and his family rescued all the possessions of the entire land rescued. Um, he meets this man called Melchizedek, which is a mysterious story. We don't even know his genealogy, but he's a high priest. I mean, he blesses Abraham. Abraham pays tithe to him. And it's a whole mystery there. But then we see the first time God gets into a covenant with Abraham. So far, God gave Abraham a promise. But in this particular place, we see God giving him a covenant. And the covenant included how all the nations are going to be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. That God is going to make out of Abraham a mighty nation that could not even be numbered like the sand of the sea shore. So he gets that promise. He loves it. He embraces it. He trusts God. He believes God. And again, it's counted to him as righteousness, right? So that faith, Abraham is this person of faith that keeps believing what God promises, what kinds of covenant God gives him, but he keeps experiencing all these troubles in life. Anyways, it keeps going. But then in the covenant, there is no specific way how God decided to bless him. It says he's going to bless him through his offspring. But it doesn't say from whom he's going to have that child. So that's where you have the story of Hagar and Sarah. Sarah decides go have a child by Hagar, which is an Egyptian slave that they have in the household. And then he gives, I mean, he has... Ishmael as a son. And then the story goes on. So all is good, right? God even returns to affirm his covenant with Abraham. 
right? He tells them, this time, look at the stars. And if you can number them, you will be able to number your descendants. So he, he affirms it. But then we get a development in the, in the covenant. God is not talking about Ishmael. Abraham thought it was about Ishmael. It wasn't. God says, the son you're going to have with Sarah, your wife, is going to be your descendant whom I'm going to bless. Which makes Abraham laugh because he's 99 and Sarah is 90 at that time. So that's like 24 years after he was called the first time, right? It's impossible. Nobody has heard of a 99-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a baby. Still, it's with all the technological advances, I mean, people don't live that long to start with. It's not an easy thing to grasp. So he laughs. So God says, you're going to name that child Isaac, which means basically to laugh. So the story keeps going. And trouble broods in the household because of even Ishmael and Hagar. And a lot of stuff unfolds. But then eventually God comes in and says, for the final time, in one year's time, right, your wife Sarah is going to conceive and you're going to have a son and you're going to call him Isaac. To which Sarah overheard this conversation because there were th three men that showed up to tell him this news. And she laughs. But she didn't laugh out loud. She was laughing for herself. And God calls her out saying, why does Sarah laugh? To which she says, I didn't laugh because nobody heard her. But God did. So the name of Isaac is the child that came into that family with both the parents laughing in unbelief or, I don't know, perplexity. How could it be? Is there laughter, basically? Anyways, Abraham's strength or what grace God has given Abraham is that he believes God regardless of it all. And then you see the story of Sodom, of Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed by those three men that showed up. Two of them go to Sodom, one of them goes to Gomorrah. We see this whole story unfold and Abraham struggles. God decides to tell, to disclose to Abraham what he's about to do. And Abraham asks God, God, you're the judge of the entire world. Shouldn't you be righteous? Are you going to destroy the city if 50 righteous men are found? And he keeps going until he gets to 10 men. And he knows it's not a small thing to have this kind of conversation with the living God who's sovereign over all things. And he's very fearful. And in fear, he keeps asking you. And we know from the story earlier, Lot lives in Sodom. And one of the reasons he's asking is try to see if the Lord will rescue him because he knows Lot is a righteous man, which the scripture tells us. But ultimately, we see the destruction of those cities and Lot and his family are rescued from that destruction. So he has this whole journey in his life of decades walking with God, growing in the faith, knowing the character of God, seeing what he does, seeing what he hates, seeing his trustworthiness, and then comes
the birth of Isaac. Isaac is born according to the promise of God. The impossibility happens. A year later, after there were 99 and 90, Sarah and Abraham have Isaac. It's a big thing for them. Now Abraham could see how God's promise is going to come about. Isaac is the promised seed. This is guaranteed. They name him Isaac. The story continues. But the problem starts happening in the household, especially Isaac gets circumcised according to the covenant that God gave before Isaac was born at eight days old. But then later on, he gets weaned, meaning he stops drinking milk, goes into eating solid food, basically, right? He becomes independent boy. And that becomes an actual celebration that Abraham puts together. And on that celebration, Ishmael ends up mocking Isaac. And because of that mockery, Sarah decides they got to get out of this place. So she says, cast out the servant and her son out of this place. And Abraham is very perplexed. He's in a place that is very complicated. He loves his son. He doesn't see why they have to be cast out, regardless of what's happening. This is family problems. You don't throw out family because we have problems. But God tells him this is the right thing to do. Sarah is not just speaking out of nothing. This is the proper thing to do. Cast out Hagar and her child and I will take care of them. And then we can see even God going with Ishmael and making him a mighty man. Being great at the bow and being able to hunt and to support himself in the wilderness. And he even gets married and Hagar picks a wife for him from Egypt, basically. Right? So this is the story that unfolds before us. So they're taking care of their good. God takes care of them completely. And Ishmael becomes an amazing, huge tribe. Today, Ishmael exists and he's one of the richest tribes around the world. But then back to the story. This is where we get Genesis 22. After these things, Abraham is settled in the area where the Philistines leave. And it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. After all this happened, after all this journey with God, after all this understanding of who God really is, Abraham is tested for the first time by God. I mean, the first question to ask is, what does it mean for God to test you? I think we know what it means to have a test at school, right? Driving tests, we can understand that. All kinds of tests that, we, that are familiar to us in the 21st century, we get it. What does it mean for the infinitely wisest being in the universe to test you? What does it mean for a holy God to test you? Why even would he test you? So what does it mean? I think the best answer to the question is found in Exodus 16, 4. So stay in uh, Genesis 22. Exodus 16, 4 says this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day. 
He's talking about the manna that he provided right after they crossed the Red Sea. And the people were complaining about, did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us? We don't have anything to eat. So God says, I'm going to provide this thing called manna, or he doesn't even call it manna. The people call it manna. I'm going to provide for you food that is going to rain down from heaven. And he says, I'm going to do that so that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. There was a clear law related to the manna. You can collect a day's portion every day. Don't get anything more than what you need. If you do, you're going to find worms and rotten manna the next morning. So don't, don't, if, if you're the kind of person who can eat a lot of food, gather as much as you need. If you're the kind of person who eats, who eats a little bit of food, get a little bit of manna. But don't overdo it. The other rule attached to manna was you can collect Monday through, I mean, Sunday through Friday, but on Saturday, which is the Sabbath, you can't collect. But on Friday, you can get two days worth of manna, and that night, it wouldn't rot. You can eat on Sunday without collecting the manna. This was the rule. And if you guys know the story, the people of Israel violate every rule about manna. They even call it this, just, this food that doesn't make sense to us, like whatever kind of bread this is. Ultimately, they even insult the manna. Jesus Christ comes in the New Testament and says, that bread that God fed you with, it was God who fed you, and that bread is me. God was teaching them something profound. So a test for God is something he does after he communicates this clear instruction on how we ought to live, what we call the revealed will of God, what the Bible teaches us how to be as Christians. And he waits and sees if we're going to follow his instructions. That's a test. If we trust his instructions against all other competing ways to lead our lives. Do we trust God's instructions about manna or everyday life, salvation, the gospel, holiness, righteousness, versus our sinful desires, our sinful impulses, like how you feel in the moment. I don't feel like doing that. Do you trust God more than I don't feel like doing that? Or I'm so, I can't help myself but do this. Do you trust God to say, I can't help myself, but God will enable me because I can't do this. This is not holy in the sight of God, is the test. And this test is going on every day for all of us. Do you trust God versus science, as it is called today, human understanding that is void of faith in God? Not that science is bad, but if you conduct knowledge denying the existence of God, by definition, it ceases to be knowledge. It's ignorant, ultimately, right? But anyways, do you believe and follow what's popular what other people think of you what gives you like this popularity in front of people that makes you look whatever however cool exciting mysterious whatever you call it whatever is your your cup of tea 
Or do you listen to God? Does the scripture lead your life or you lead your life? Do you pursue whatever costs you the least about? You're just too lazy to be bothered to follow a set of instructions. You don't even read them. Is that where you are? So that's what a test is like in the sight of God from the scripture. Therefore, there, this is God seeing if you acknowledge that he is God in reality. That is your faith real? We were reading James earlier. Faith without works is dead. There is no such thing as faith that stays in your mind. Oh yeah, I believe in him, but it doesn't do anything in my life. If faith does not control every fiber of your being and every moment of your life and every action of your life does not flow from faith, what, what does the scripture say? Whatever is not from faith is sin. Right? So that's what God is testing. Do you have faith? Do you claim God exists or do you actually believe it? If you do, believe it. It will change your life. Do you believe we're in the first, like the second story of this building? Yeah, if you do, you will take the stair. But if it's just a mind thing, you walk out of the window. And that will be painful, to say the least. That's how we behave, though. We say God exists, and it doesn't matter what He says for our lives. That's what happens when your impulses push you. When other thoughts and other instructions from around the world and popularity and people's opinions, all these things lead you, that's what's happening to your life. You're being hijacked as a believer. Your faith is zero at that moment. So faith is trust in God that manifests itself in everyday life by that definition. And the other thing to know about tests of God is the opposite is not a good idea. Testing God, I mean. And we can see that in Exodus 17 too. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Testing the Lord is not a good idea. We're not capable of testing the Lord. There's no reason for God to be tested to begin with. But then we can see a little bit deeper of information. You could ask, but what exactly does it mean to test the Lord? That sounds like a vague thing right here. I mean, they just complained about water. Why is that testing God? Deuteronomy 6, 16, which is the last book in what Moses, when Moses was alive, Moses repeating the law to the second generation, the generation that came after 40 years of Israel being in the wilderness, says this, it became a law. You shall not put the Lord, your God, to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. So this is interesting. When God tests you, he sees if you're going to walk in his instructions and in his commandments. You know what testing the Lord means? Rejecting that and seeing what he will do. You say, I'm supposed to be holy and I'm different as a Christian from the rest of the world. I'm going to see what you're going to do if I keep living like the world. That's testing the Lord. 
So there is no middle ground here. It's not like we can disobey God and it's like we failed at passing the test. It's not like that. As soon as you choose to disobey God, you choose to test Him. See what He will do. And God could do a lot. Right? Like make an entire generation's life meaningless wandering in a wilderness that they could have crossed in a couple of days. God has all the time in the world, all the resources in the world, right? So that's what we're seeing in this place. God tests man to see if he walks based on instructions more than trusting his own understanding and judgment, no matter how many people get together. And man can easily test God by doing what God says not to do. Just to see maybe what God will do in return? Or testing God if he will do what he says he will do. God comes and says to us, right? Do not be angry because anger is murder. And you're like, I don't care. I can't control myself. I'm just going to keep living like that. But God tells you if you're angry, you keep going in anger, there will be consequences. You're like, I'm going to see what he's going to do. And then you reap the curse that comes with being angry. I mean, you go to a scientist. Let them tell you what anger does to your body. What anger does to your relationships. Immediate consequences to everything you do. But then there's an eternal consequence to everything we do, right? Once judgment day passes. Everything God says not to do is the best thing for you not to do. Everything God says to do is what will give you hope and joy and life. So questioning it and going against it is like the most foolish thing we do with our lives. But we constantly do it. So that's what it's like to test the Lord. And if you guys remember, this is one of the tests that the devil tested the Lord with. Throw yourself from the temple, and the angels of God are going to protect you. It's even written in Scripture. He's misquoting Scripture. And Jesus responds with, it is written also, do not test the Lord your God. Instead, obey Him, is what's written in Scripture. He overcomes the temptation very easily. But we are tempted by this very temptation every day of our lives, right? And there's hope. Right? There's joy in knowing that Jesus Christ overcame that temptation and that His righteousness is imputed to us and we, in faith in Christ, can overcome this temptation every second of our lives. It's actually a new life that we're talking about. So this is the test that we see. We can go deeper into this idea and ask, why is this evil? I mean, there's a million reasons why this is evil. There's so many things we can say about it. But at least I will, I want you guys to think of one thing. God is the only one who does everything he says. Who God is inside is the same thing you see outside. That is the nature we are called to imitate even as believers, as children of God. Testing God is a futile effort. God has been consistently faithful to his promise, just like Abraham's life, 
through thousands of years, even through human rebellion. And every good you experience today, regardless of our rebellion, comes because God is upholding the universe as it is. In him, we move and live and have our being. Your very existence is because God is good to you. On top of that, all the benefits that are on top of existence, living and moving and having your being, all the extra stuff that you get is not based on your righteousness, but God's righteousness. So testing him on top of all that grace and all that undeserved lifestyle, it's such like low-grade life, to say the least. It's such evil. It's like someone rescuing you from the fire, let's say. Like, let's give you an image. And like you being angry about what color clothing they're wearing. You're wearing orange. Like, I hate that. Really? Someone rescuing your life bothers you? What color of clothing that they have? But anyways, just to think about it. God's nature and love for us, when tested, is just the most evil thing if we really understand the nature of God and the goodness of God and what he does for us in everyday life. So, God tested Abraham. So, okay, what's God's specific test for Abraham this time? So, we're going into a specific moment in Abraham's life to see what God tests him with. So, testing by God is not this horrible thing that he does to us, but it's what we need to grow in the faith, what we need to live our lives to the fullest. But we see one particular test that is unmatched. None of us got tested this much. Here's the test. God wants Abraham. This is how it reads. God said to Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. And don't think of this as a story of Abraham. Think of it as your story. You just got told, take one of the people that you love in your life the most, and offer that person as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'm going to show you. It's that serious. So God wants to sac like wants Abraham to sacrifice his son. Not only that, offer him as a burnt offering. And the first thing that the human brain will do is like, which son? He has two by now. Ishmael has left the house. He's living in the wilderness with his mom by this time. But Abraham loves Isaac so much. And all the promises of God are on Isaac. That it's so easier. It's much easier to think of. Maybe he's talking about Ishmael. I will do anything to go get him. Or anything like that. Mm, the test is very specific. God says, your son talking about the relationship that Abraham has with Isaac, meaning I'm telling you not to sacrifice any random person. I'm telling you to sacrifice 
your son that you have gotten at almost age 100 while your wife is 90. Your only son, you don't have another from her. You don't have another one that's like him. And finally, he says, Isaac, the promised son, the son through which God's blessings become yes and amen in Abraham's life. So God has been pointing every hope Abraham has. Abraham was a wealthy person who has abundance. Even when he was called, he wasn't a poor person, Abraham. He came from a wealthy family. If there was anyone who was never tempted by wealth, Abraham would be one of them. Because he's always been wealthy and he never cared about wealth from his character that we see. Even when people try to offer him money, he would say no. Even when people try to offer him land for free, he would say no, I'm going to pay for it. You're not going to, I'm not going to owe anybody nothing. That's who Abraham is. But Isaac, Isaac is a big deal for Abraham. Isaac is God's promise as far as Abraham is concerned. He goes beyond possessions. He goes beyond any profit you can get under the sun for Abraham. So kill him. I mean, killing a person is a whole complicated reality. But this particular person is just beyond impossible. So this is redundant speaking. Your son, your only son, your son Isaac. And it's redundant for that very purpose. Abraham just realized he has no option. This is not ambiguous. The instruction is very clear. And the way God is speaking to him is what he has been used to. God has spoken to him two covenants, and he has told him a lot of information, including how he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham responded to that, and they had a whole conversation. By this time, Abraham is set on everything. He knows that he's hearing from God. The holy God he knows, it's clear for him. And he knows who God is saying to sacrifice Isaac. This is redundant information that makes it impossible. And it's not later. It's not 10 years from now. It's now. There's no way out. Last week, you guys remember how the sin that mankind commits becomes this rushing waters that we cannot escape from. The consequences come to crush us, and Christ overcomes that, dies for it, and we are set free. Well, that's what this feels like. He's closed in from every side. And God makes sure the description is as vivid as possible. Your son Isaac, whom you love, he says. Don't forget, you love him. Not only is he the covenant child, you love him. This is your child. This is the one who you celebrate every step of his life. You make an occasion out of. The one whom you favor, you have affection for, whom all of God's promises are in. The one whom he suffered for. He seeked after the one whom he left his entire family for, pursuing God's promise through whom that is going to come. 
the one he waited for 25 years plus. By this time, Isaac is a young boy, not just a baby. And he has raised for a while. He has seen him grow. God has gave him as a miracle. And it's been a miracle to have raised Isaac. So go offer him up. So it's not, God is not trying to help Abraham remove his mind from who Isaac means, what, what Isaac means to him in every way. He's making sure this is not a confused idea. So the command simply, over Isaac, your son, whom you love as a burnt offering. This is an impossible test. This makes every test that we go through sound like a paper cut. But Abraham loved Isaac, and this is just impossible to even comprehend. And there are many ways out of this. He could say, the Lord does not ask for child sacrifice. That's not Yahweh. And it really isn't. Other gods, even God destroyed the people in Canaan because they did stuff like that. They burned their children for Moloch, a God who required, according to human worship of that God, the burning of children. That's one of the judgments that God put against the people of Canaan. So he could easily say that's not who God is. He could say that. And God himself has blessed to promise, I mean, has promised to bless Abraham through Isaac. He could say, no, this is the covenant child. God will never ask me to sacrifice him. Let alone offering as a burnt offering. Or he could simply say, the classic, this is murder. How am I going to commit murder? God will never tell me to commit murder. That's not the kind of God he is. Don't you guys feel that pressure every day? Isn't that how we feel like we can excuse disobeying God? It's clear on the scriptures, right? It's clear in the scriptures. It says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Or if someone hits you on the right cheek, give him also the left cheek. It's clear. That's not... If our life is summarized, it wouldn't display that. Why? Because there are reasonings like these in our minds. But for Abraham who has walked with God and has seen the faithfulness of God, who has really learned who God is, this is not an easy thing to do. You don't just dismiss God's requirement, command, for, because of your own thinking or whatever you feel like in the moment. This is clear instruction. God didn't come and tell him, Abraham, I have a test for you. I want to see if you're willing to offer Isaac for me. No, he didn't say that. Abraham has no idea this is a test. What Abraham knows is, you're going to offer Isaac as a burnt offering. Period. So he has no way out, even though there are so many plausible ways that he can think about this. So Abraham recognized that 
God has communicated clearly. This is not ambiguous. That's where I stand. And that's what faith is like. And that's what we read in James earlier. You need to be bold and courageous to be faithful. It's all a grace from God. It's not for the flimsy, though. It's not for the impulsive. It's not for the unrighteous. It's for those who trust in Christ, for those who are empowered by the Spirit of God. It's not human doing. It's courage from God. So this is not just blind trust. God is holy and good. His instructions are life and even more than life. It's a complicated consideration. Abraham knows God is good. So all of those questions that he might have, he wouldn't let me murder my child. He wouldn't let me sacrifice a child. He's not that kind of God. All these things that we come up with are questioning it. Uh-oh, did God just lose it? Did he just like become evil all of a sudden? Oh, is, was there a dark side to God that I'm seeing right now? No, Abraham knows, no, God is good. Always more than we can even imagine. So there's no way out, even though it seems plausible to, to, to think those things. If God is good, there is no excuses not to do what he tells us to do. That's the complication of faith. But what he's asking us to do for someone who believes in God and the holiness of God, kill a person, that's impossible. That should literally destroy you. The thought of it should destroy you. That's where Abraham is. That's what faith is like. It's impossible for man. What does Abraham do? Well, Abraham rose early, the scripture says, and he didn't tell anyone, including Sarah, obviously, and obviously Isaac. You're not going to get someone to go through a journey with you by telling them, oh yeah, by the way, I'm going to sacrifice you. Let's go. It's not going to happen. And even the emotional trauma that Abraham is going through, he doesn't want to share it with his child. At the very least, that's the best he could do for his son at the moment. Or his mother. He saddled his donkey took two of his young men, it says, and his son Isaac, and prepared before the journey. He woke up early so that he can cut wood for burnt offering. And he arose, and it says, he went to the place where God had told him. And then the story keeps going. They travel a three days journey, and three days later, it says, Abraham saw the place from afar and parted from the young men, leaving the donkey. So up to this point, the wood was on the donkey, all these things they had to carry. They left the donkey in that place. And Isaac and Abraham only, he tells his servants, we're going to sacrifice and we're going to come back to you guys. That's all the information he gives them. Stay here. He puts the wood on Isaac. 
Literally, Isaac is carrying the wood on which he's supposed to be burnt. I don't even know what that feels like to do that with the information that Abraham knows. None of us do. Either way, whether he decides to tell him or not to tell him, that's an impossible reality. And Abraham carries the fire and the knife. That's what's happening. That's what faith is doing. But did you guys notice? Abraham is not addressing the elephant in the room, basically, right? He's doing everything he could to obey God, but deal with the complexity of what's happening, what has been required. He's not having a conversation about it. He's not praying about it. He's not doing anything about it. He's not thinking about it. But I'm not saying he's not thinking at all about it. Whatever thinking he's doing, he's doing it in private, in his own heart. And then it says, the scripture goes on to tell us, he helps Isaac carry the wood, he carried the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together, it says. And then in their journey is this awkward silence, I guess. We don't hear any conversation between the two, except one voice disturbs the silence. And that voice comes and says, my father. You know that moment with like someone that you're close to and they're just awkwardly different from what they are? And you just become this person who's like very assertive or very like, you actually name the relationship? Are you still my dad, right? Or I'm going to be as gently as possible, going to inquire, what's going on today? Says my father, which is the hardest thing to hear in this moment. Because if there's any qualifications, Abraham, by definition, is failing at being a regular father, let alone the kind of father he actually is. To which he responds, he responds, here I am, my son. Behold, Isaac says, the wood and the fire. But where is the lamb for a burnt offering? So Isaac, by definition, is not even thinking about the knife. He's not considering himself as being harmed by it. To which Abraham has to give a response, and his response is this. God will provide for himself a lamb, the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. Which is the title of our sermon. So the author really says, they went together again. So they went both of them together. He repeats what he said earlier. A journey, quiet, serious, complicated, quietness, disturbed by that conversation, and then fades back into quietness. The journey continues towards the sacrifice. I mean, doesn't somebody want to scream, stop? Don't go. You don't want to. I do. 
There's lots of moral and logical questions that come to our mind. And I don't think we can come up with one thing Abraham was not thinking and feeling and struggling with at that very moment. R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite people who preached the gospel, has this amazing sermon on, entitled Abraham and Isaac, in which how he describes the burden of being in this place, which really depicts everyday human struggle in obedience. He drives deep to consider what was going on in Abraham's mind and heart, and I definitely recommend it for you guys to go out and search it. You can find it on YouTube, but you can go to Ligonier Ministries and also find it there. It's entitled Abraham and Isaac. I'm not going to go deep into that. And that's why I'm recommending it to you. But for me, I just want to tell you guys, all the logical questions and the moral questions and everything, you can, you can kind of keep them for now. We'll talk about them later on. You can even relax, I could say. Spoilers are alert. God never planned to kill Isaac, and Isaac does not die. So all the moral and logical questions go out the window. But it's still a deep, traumatic experience for both Abraham and Isaac. In fact, I do not want you to lose your passion for justice and morality and logic in this place. Keep it. We'll come to it in the end. In this very moment, though, I want you to hear what the Holy Spirit was speaking through Abraham in this complex place of faith, trying to reconcile his love for his son and obedience to God. The Spirit speaks through him an eternal reality. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. People do not speak like that normally. We don't. When was the last time you said something like that? We talk about everyday life things. Only people in the faith as spoken speak like that because the Spirit speaks through them in that faith. This is refined truth and hope that God provides only when we are in the good fight of faith. This is the life that we're called to live. It transcends present-day earth life. Trusting God against all circumstances and knowledge just is beyond this world. That's actually the only kind of freedom there is in the universe. It doesn't seem like freedom for our human brains, but it actually is freedom. Because God is the one who's sovereignly in control of everything that happens in the universe, including what happens in your heart. You might think Isaac and Abraham just went through a traumatic experience. Oh, really? You think so? They didn't. God is in control of the heart. God is in control of everything that happens in this earth without denying that was a very complicated traumatic experience. That trauma had no power in their lives from that point on. And you will see that later on. Here's what it actually means. 
When Abraham said the Lord will provide a lamb for himself, Abraham is plainly saying, you are the sacrifice, my son. But I cannot tell you right now. You're the lamb. That's all he understands. But what God is saying is, this is not a random test. It's actually a story, a shadow that is repeated in redemptive history throughout the people of Israel's lives. The Israelites are told to celebrate the Passover in which they sacrifice a lamb to celebrate their freedom from Egypt. Why a lamb? It was necessary. The blood was necessary for them to, be, to not be killed that night. When the angel of death passed through and destroyed the firstborn of every cattle and every family in Egypt, except those that belonged to Israel, and that did that put the blood on their doorposts. So God, at the pinnacle of every story, places this reality of a lamb that has to be sacrificed. So Abraham is playing in his life, living in his life, a greater reality than he can even imagine or understand. And the Spirit is speaking through his mouth the reality of that complex truth. So at the climax of every story, we see the lamb that is to be slain. God spoke it through the prophets and only Jesus revealed it eventually in the end, what it actually means. Not only has he revealed it in teaching about it, he actually lived it out, died as that lamb on a cross and told us why he died for our sins and even gave us faith in his name that liberates us free from sin today. That's what Christianity is all about. There are multiple reasons to contradict what Abraham is doing, but only one reason why he would do what he is doing. And that reason, the only reason is God. God is good. His commands are good. He is sovereign. He's in control of every moment, every action, every reality. Faith in God is what it simply boils down to. In other words, Abraham is trusting in the goodness of the one who told him to offer as a burnt offering his only son, his son, Isaac, whom he loves. God is that much trustworthy. Then we see the ending of the story. They came to the place, the story goes on. God had told them, build the altar. Altars are usually built out of stones in that time. And they laid the wood in the order. And Abraham bound Isaac. I don't know how that happens. The scripture doesn't tell us. I don't know how painful that is to do. Even more than everything else that they have done so far. Like traveling for three days to sacrifice your son. I don't even know what that is like that. Like how painful that is. Bounding your son for the final moments and trying to kill him and burn him. I don't know how that. I don't even know if there was a conversation between them where 
Abraham just says to Isaac, Isaac, right, so far I couldn't tell you, but I got to tell you now, you're the one that I am here to sacrifice. To which Isaac could have responded, okay, my father, if that's even possible. Or he forced him and bound him, which is a very traumatic experience either way you look at it, whether Isaac obeys or disobeys or is forced into this being bound thing. This is a, a spot we need to stand and think, what happens in our lives when we're faced with decisions like that? How do, do we fold, right? We, we usually fold. This is too complicated. God wouldn't do this to me, right? This is too real. And it's not even, God is not saying, go sacrifice yourself. He's saying, sacrifice another one, the one you love the most, your son, uh, an innocent child. We really lose it as humans in this place. We just come up with all these weird, moral, logical conclusions, whatever. Again, remember, God's plan is not to kill the child. He's not going to die. But you wouldn't know that when you have to obey God. You just got to trust God is good. And that has to mean something. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I don't know how the bounding happened. He took a knife to slaughter his son, the scripture says. So basically, as far as Abraham is concerned, he obeyed God. He kept every thought out of his mind and focused on the goodness of God. And in faith, tried to sacrifice his son. Not by any means. Freely. Just enjoying it. Just going there. No, he's in turmoil. He's struggling. The very idea that he can't even talk about this or he's not even, there's no audible, audible reality here. There's no information for us. Means he's actually depressed and he's beyond depression. He's actually completely locked up. He can't think or say anything. So he's in trouble, like he's in struggle, yet he obeyed regardless. So as far as Abraham is concerned, his child is dead. How though? Like, how can someone who believes in God, how could someone who believes in a good God, let alone, do that? That's why I said, faith is much more complicated than we give it credit for. The book of Hebrews comes around and tells us that Abraham believed God was able to raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham believed God's promise through Isaac. I will bless you. So Isaac, by definition, will not die. Do we live like that? Do we hear what God says and realize, I know what's about to happen right here. I'm about to be the one doing this. But I know God already said Isaac will live, he will have descendants, and through him, the earth is going to be blessed. It's far more complicated than what the mind can take. But through the Spirit, it's something we can understand and live in everyday life. So, an angel speaks from heaven, audible voice from heaven comes in. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, 
do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. All that care that we have as humans, like how could I even touch my son and all that stuff? Guess what? God is 10 times caring and loving to Isaac than Abraham will ever be or any one of us will ever think of Isaac. You don't even, if Isaac was just one of us, you might not even care about his life. God is not like that. God cares when you're not in danger as well as when you're in danger. Don't even touch him. Don't even do anything to him from this point on. Simply means unbound him, let him go, get that knife away from him. It's it. It's over. The test is over. The test was to see if Abraham feared God. And the result was, I know that you fear God. In other words, contrary to popular belief, faith is God, in God is not brain dead, but trusts and fears God. Believes in a good God and a sovereign God who can decide to do anything he wants. That's what faith is like. God is not your president that you elected. That only when he says something that seems logical to you, that seems legal according to the American legal system, you can believe in him. And if he says anything contrary to what is good to you, you stop believing him. No, God is God. By definition, he never does anything that's not good. And by definition, he's sovereign over everything that happens. Nobody could stop him. So, the fear of the Lord is the one thing that we may not, we may struggle with. How could we fear God that is so tender and loving and kind? Why would we fear Him? But that's what Scripture requires out of us. It's necessary when we live in this life. So, it's honoring to God to believe that He's trustworthy, holy, infinitely wise, and the giver of life, not the taker of it in the sense that He murders people. But life is taken and given by God. As far as anybody that dies, it's because God sovereignly controls their death that they die. It's to honor God as God, even when everything we think and feel tells us to believe God to be hiding some kind of evil behind this front of being good and holy. Because the alternative is, the only other alternative that you have if you don't believe in God is that he's cruel, evil, reckless, arbitrary, merciless, even worse than humans. Like, he can't even think as much as us. He doesn't even feel the pain of others as much as us. Us who are evil by definition, even when we do good stuff. You being evil, Jesus says, know how to good gift, get good gifts to your children. How much more your father who is in heaven. We have to lower God to a level where he's like worse than the devil, basically. Because we're, we're fine with the devil in this culture, right? You have to make a choice. 
either God is good. The, you, you guys notice the scripture never says God is excellent. He's very good. He, it says he's good. Right? It doesn't try to give you some kind of adjective to make him look something, like something. God is good. Plain good. Nobody's good but God. But then if you don't think God is good, the only alternative that he is saying in this place is the only alternative that we have in this place is he's evil, cruel, reckless, merciless. He doesn't care about human life. And he changes his mind whenever he wants. There's nothing. I mean, how can you trust God if you believe that about him? If you, if you can question one thing, maybe when he said, I'm going to bless you through Isaac, he's just, he was just playing with me. If you could say that, you can't trust God. If you can't even trust him on anything, at the smallest thing, then your faith in God is dead. There's no value to it. Humans are like that. That's why we struggle with God being good. God says, you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, so I know that you fear me. I mean, you might be asking, why would God test us? Doesn't he know what's in our hearts? If we believe, he knows we have faith. Why was this test necessary? Because God is wise. Believing in your heart is not the same thing as what Abraham experienced, living it in your everyday life. Faith has to be tested by real life in order for it to be faith. But because what's in our heart is necessarily supposed to come out, God gives us the grace to be able to live in faith by the power of the Spirit. The heart strengthened by grace in faith brings forth a pleasing sacrifice to God in everyday life, is what Abraham's story is teaching us. Wait a minute. Last thing I want to ask. Okay, nothing happened to Isaac or Abraham. How do you account for the trauma, the hardship that Isaac and Abraham had to experience. That could haunt them for the rest of their lives. Scripture says this, Hebrews 11, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in act of offering his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back from the dead, basically. By faith, Isaac, interestingly, invoked future blessing on Jacob and Esau. Not only did Abraham go through this by faith, truly trusting nothing is going to happen to his son, truly, he wasn't... With all the trauma, he never doubted God in this. That's what was counted as righteousness for him. 
Isaac grew to be the kind of person who does the same thing with God. Who lives by faith, not by sight. So you're worried about trauma that he experienced by the faith of Abraham? How about a boy who grows up to be a man to live just like his father? Who knows the goodness of God? Who sees the mercy of God and the love of God? The preciousness of God for our lives. So the story ends and the angel of the Lord called to Abraham the second time from heaven, it says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, he says, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, which is the covenant you already gave him. And as the sand that is in the seashore, on the seashore, sorry. And your offspring shall possess the gates of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men. They arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba. That's the, the end of that particular story. Abraham is receiving the covenant of God completely sealed by a promise. You know what the promise says? By myself I have sworn. Because God knows Abraham believes the goodness of God, has seen how God is merciful and kind and beyond our thinking. It says, by my nature I will swear to you, which is unchanging, which is better than a check that you can cash out of bank, which is better than money saved, which is better than anything, intellect, physical prowess, family, friends, connections, all these things that you can put together, career, whatever you call it, the safety of houses, cars, whatever, better than that, even more real than that, more sure than that is the nature, the unchanging nature of the living God. By myself, I swear, he says. And he swears. So he gives them a promise and he connects that promise to his unchanging nature. By two immutable things, says the writer of Hebrews. By which it is impossible for God to lie, he was told of this promise. Why? Because you feared me enough to offer up your one and only child, your only son whom you love. So faith and obedience by faith is not nothing. It's not this weird theoretical experiment with God. It's actually what faith is. Faith that is not tested is nothing. Faith that is tested bears result. It gives us hope. It gives us character. Because of who God is, that hope does not disappoint us. That character never fades. It never fails. Unbelievable blessing. The whole story makes no sense to us whatsoever, though, until the coming of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to recite for you 
text from the New Testament. First, the one who's supposed to point to the Messiah, John the Baptist, comes and tells us this. The next day he saw Jesus, this is John 1, coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man that ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him before his purpose. For this purpose I came to baptize with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. Who the Lamb that God provides really is. In that story, God provides a ram to be sacrificed in the place of Isaac. That site is the Temple Mount, Mount Moriah, on which Solomon built the temple. That site is a few miles away from the mountain that Jesus was sacrificed on, Golgotha. The city of Jerusalem is called Zion because of Mount Zion that is in Jerusalem. God sent him to the particular place that he wants him to go and to show this drama about Jesus Christ who is to come, the Lamb of God in that place. I myself, John says, did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then we hear it from Christ himself. Matthew 20, 28. The Son of Man cannot, sorry, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, 12. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and did they, they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Matthew 17, 22. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Mark 9.30, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know. Or when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself is what Jesus preached. This is the story that never gets old. This is the one story that God repeatedly talks about. So much so that the Apostle Paul that is known for being a very complicated writer, an amazing servant of God, by the grace of God, as he says, says this, For I decide to know nothing, nothing. I have no wisdom, no understanding, no complication, no lofty, like, value but Christ and him crucified so let's recap and conclude here the story of Abraham makes no sense from the Old Testament other than the blessings that Abraham got and through him how the people of Israel became what they are 
and how Christ was born from that bloodline. Name me that. But we as Christians know better. The story of Abraham is depicting God as the father who has to sacrifice his son for the sins of the world. So when it's written in John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him may have an everlasting life. That's deeper than we can fathom. That's the climax of the story. That's the whole story of creation. And this sacrifice was known before the foundation of the earth. We have the book of life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the earth. That's the book in which the names of those who believe is written. So before God decides to create anything, He has decided to sacrifice His Son. Before you were created, God decided to sacrifice His Son to save you. Three things we can see about God. God is the only just judge, period. He doesn't just pass by sin. He deals with every sin. Every sin. He pays for the sins of those who believe in Christ Jesus by the death of his son. As a father, if Abraham felt so distressed to sacrifice Isaac, how much more God who is holy feel through eternity knowing that his son has to be sacrificed? As a son, if you think about any kind of distress, how much distress would be in the heart of Jesus who knew this from the beginning? And how much glory does Christ have who willingly, joyfully comes to offer his life as a ransom for many who don't deserve it? God is just. You can't even imagine how much. God is merciful regardless of how undeserving we are of the sacrifice of his son by any measure. God has prepared a blessing through faith and repentance to those who have sinned. He paid the grace price of our, for our transgressions, sins, and iniquity. A God merciful and slow to anger is who we meet. And lastly, in both instances, judgment or mercy, God is love. In both cases, only by the display of his life, his love in Christ, do we know what love actually is. This is the definition of love that shows us who God is. This is who God is. God is holy in his love when he excuses judgment and when he saves the ungodly by faith in Christ who died on their behalf. This is what we believe. This is what Palm Sunday is about a triumphal entry, Jesus offering himself as a sacrifice through celebration, he goes into the city. That's the day we celebrate today. So Isaac is just a shadow, but Jesus embraced the sacrifice, went through it. He died. He was raised from the dead by the Father. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you so much for the love and the beauty that you pour into our hearts, the, the, this grand offering, this grand display of your love, your perfections, your goodness, how trustworthy you are, how you are beyond our understanding. You are much more than our mistrusts of you, our suspicion of your nature. You are a holy, loving, just God who's merciful beyond measure. Because of your great love and abundant, rich mercy, you have saved us. While we were dead in sins and trespasses, Lord, how much more are we loved today as we are already saved by Christ, being sanctified by your word? Lord, I pray that you bring, you bring the hope and the joy into the heart of the church, knowing that this is the sacrifice it took to bring us to where we are. And this new life that we live, no matter how painful it gets, through the pain of the living God, through the pain of Christ Jesus, who really does feel pain, We have been given life and mercy and joy and abundant life of peace. And your desire to sanctify us, to free us from sin, is because sin is destructive for us. Your desire to lead us in the way of righteousness is so that we may have life. Open our hearts to perceive your word to perceive your goodness, to perceive your love that is unperceivable with the human mind. Let your spirit come and teach us the joy and the hope of your unchanging nature and your love and your sacrifice that you have given us and your mercy every day that we need without which we cannot even stand once. Father, we thank you for what you have open from your word for us. Lord, I pray that you go with us the rest of the week, that you encourage us, you enable us to understand your word, that you help us carry on in faith in this life that you have given us. You help us have a high value for your name, a high value and understanding of who you are, that we may rejoice and have a full life in you. Go out with us. In Jesus' name I pray. As we go on into Passion Week, as we remember the Lord's sacrifice for us throughout His life, and especially in this week, Father, reminds us, remind us of these things, that we may live weighty, faithful life before You. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. God bless you all. We're done for today.